So you're saying I can't rip, but I own the DVD. Why can't I just rip it and throw it online in my course shell? I'll hide it behind a password. Troll. (laughs) I have no problem with that approach, by the way. I should, but. (laughs) So why don't you have a problem with that approach? And then why should you? (laughs) Because you're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In this summer bonus episode, we are going to cast off the chains of conformity and follow a different and dare I say slightly experimental format. Rather than introducing and discussing a single structured theme or topic, today we are going to jump right into a rapid round of questions and answers, lightning round style. Here's the catch. None of us know what questions or even topics the others are bringing to the party, so we will have to think on our feet and keep our responses brief. No Googling on the fly. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my creative colleagues, Celia Kutraitiwa, Aaron Kraft, Stephen Crawford. All right, gang, are we all ready for this? Who wants to go first? Ooh, I'll start. All right, so my first question that I have today is a big one that we see all the time, every semester, scaling or waiting? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Lightning round begins. Like scaling waiting or waiting period. what? Oh, it's right. I'm sorry? Come on, scaling or waiting what? Scaling or waiting grades. But I, I don't really know what scaling, I know what waiting grades are, right? You have different categories. Like you have uh, discussions worth 20%, all your exams are worth 50%, and then basically everything has to equal 100 at the very end, right? So that's waiting. But what is scaling exactly? Scaling is, it's close to waiting, but you're taking the amount of points. You're actually upping the total and then making it so that the points for each piece are at the same percentage value. So you're going by points rather than percentage. So like all of your discussions, instead of being worth 20%, even though each discussion on its own, or they tally up to maybe 100 points, they actually would, if they're being scaled, they would tally up to 20 points. Yes. And because they're only worth 20%. Yes, exactly. I don't think there's really a difference. I mean, if you want to go through the hassle of trying to figure, I think waiting would be easier than scaling. So they could be equivalent. I think that's an interesting point. I think the answer for me would be whatever is easiest for the instructor to get across to the students and hopefully have confidence that they understand. You know, and that's one of the things that comes up with the quality matters rubric is is explaining the grading scale. And, you know, I, I am personally in favor of scaling the points. If you, you know, sometimes you are fortunate enough to be able to set your points for your uh, for your course so that, you know, it's 100 points. And so therefore, if your discussions are worth 20% of the course, then and you have four discussions, they're worth five points each equals 20. The problem comes into play with test questions. When the test questions end up being worth 0.2 points because of how you have things scaled. And that means that, oh, I got a 30 on this exam. That's good because I got them all right. And some students get confused by that. And that's where the percentages really can come into play. And then, you know, and I've seen where you'll you'll force it to either be 100 points or 500 points or 1,000 points just to keep that math simple. But sometimes I think we go, we work too hard. My course, one of the courses I teach is worth 240 points. It's just a weird number. And I was like, that's where it is. And you calculate the percentages. At the same time, though, I do like the idea 
of waiting. There are parts of that because especially going back to exams, if I get 100 on an exam, that's what a student wants to know. Did I get 100% on this exam? What's my grade on this exam? They don't think about the course as a whole. What did I get on this exam? What did I get on this assignment? They're, they're looking at it from that point of view. So therefore, you really need to consider how waiting works. But then you need to explain it clearly so the students understand that you know, not all 100% are the same. I think um, for myself, I'm with Jeanette on it comes down to what is best understood. I think there are times where waiting is a lot easier to do and it probably is the most understood, but scaling is a lot nicer when you're looking at it. And also sometimes when you're dealing with the grade center within Blackboard, it makes it a little easier to fix some of those uh, grades, like Steven said, especially when it comes to testing. Scaling, though, it becomes a nuisance sometimes when you start to look at, like, let's say 2,000 total points at the end of a course. Um, that's when scaling, I think, sometimes gets a little out of hand. So, Let me ask this question on this topic then. You know, when you're doing the scaling and you have to throw a question out on an exam, how does that impact your final grade? Because now you have fewer points than initially advertised because you were doing every single question was weighted to a degree to be, oh, this is worth a quarter point. This is worth a, a tenth of a point, you know, and now you've thrown a couple out. That can really impact things horribly, can't it? Now you're moving into dangerous curving territory. Well, and this is where if you're doing waiting, who cares? It's still, you can you can then do it test by test so much easier. You're right. It's an approximate value at that point. <laughs> so the no answer, one size fits kinda, all. Yes, so it, the answer, if I heard it correctly, is it depends. Yes. It's all in the situation. All right, next. Everybody's looking at me, so I'll go next. Badges. Digital doodads doled out to determined individuals, deftly displaying their dutiful discoveries and prodigious deeds. Great method of recognizing effort and achievement, or greatest method? Discuss. Wow. What? <laughs> Go, can you read that again? Can you translate? Can I, Questioner's I bias. <laughs> Wait, read it again or translate? Yes. Yes. Both. <laughs> um... So, well, the question is badges. Do we like them or do we not like them? I, I think this is sort of, um, this is an oddly controversial thing. I've heard designers decry the use of badges. They're unnecessary. Who cares? They're arbitrary. But I myself think they're kind of cool. Plus, you know, our previous, uh, what was it, Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, sits there and lauds these as, you know, a, a nice step forward for, for motivating and uh, sort of an achievement-oriented step for, you know, educators. I think they're kind of cool. Plus, I, I like neat, shiny things, so I like badges. I think it depends on the incentive for the badge. What's the reason for the badge? Is it there just so you could say, I got this badge? Or is it there because it's leading up to something else? <laughs> what is the reasoning behind having that badge sitting there? Is it to show that you're competent in a skill? And everyone understands the badge. I think part of the issue is that not everyone is bought into the badging system. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard for people like myself who isn't as interested in badges to say, ooh, I want that badge because I don't know exactly what it's going for. And it doesn't necessarily guarantee everyone understands what this badge means. That's a great point about the universality and how we're maybe not there yet. And to that, I would add, I think there's a lot of potential for badges depending mm -hmm. on which 
kind of population of learners you're talking about uh, in higher education. Students often are directed to develop skills like library and research competencies that they don't necessarily get rewarded or recognized for through their coursework. Are there places in potential where we could do a better job of showcasing their growth and their development there? Yes, absolutely. Until and unless there's probably some motivation for them to do so, i.e. if those are recognized by potential employers or bear some sort of credit, do I think anybody will care much? Possibly not. I'm glad you said the word credit and and recognition there because I think badges are looking for a problem to solve still. I don't think they have a place yet. And that's part of the problem. We've been trying to figure out where do badges fit? You know, we want to go back to the old Boy Scout, Girl Scout days of earning all these badges and showing them off to show how smart we are. The problem is, is that most of the opportunities we've seen don't fit. It's still looking for a problem. Now, where I think there's some potential is in the idea of a competency-based education program. When you get away from something like the Carnegie Unit and you stop using credit hours to measure education and you start doing, as you were talking about, the skills, when you start thinking about, you can think about a nursing program. As you do various skills as, as a nurse, once you've completed the prerequisite set of badges, now you're ready to move into a clinical application. Um, because you've got the basic knowledge set, and now you can move up to the next level to to uh, to perform, or maybe um, in a professional development setting. Because, like I say, right now we're seeing them in higher education use that you mentioned, learning library skills, and it's like those are great items. But you know, in the end, who cares? The real question is, did you use those skills on that last uh, research paper or not? And you're going to get your recognition through a Carnegie unit and your GPA and your credit hours earned. So. Until we break away from that, I just I think badges are just outside. Now I will give one more professional development. Mm -hmm. I think when we look at professional development and workforce development, I think there is a role there. But then again, the universality needs to be acknowledged. You know, if I say, oh, as a faculty member, I have earned a badge in academic honesty, and I know, and what does that mean? You know, if there's a, a unit who says, oh, this means you have X, Y, Z skills then that's a whole different story. I think then that's transferable. It's an alternative form of assessment. No, I think it's an alternative form of displaying what you've learned, not the actual assessment itself. Well, sure, but you complete an educational challenge. You're awarded a, a GPA, a, a credit, a credit unit with a GPA. Builds upon prior learning, so you have the scaffolding in place there. Just like in say, a, just like with your Carnegie units. Check it out. But I it's just like this thing. But that's what a degree is in the end. A degree is just an Uber badge when you get down to it. An Uber badge. And it's not circular either. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with cars. <laughs> it's a virtual sticker. I like the virtual stickers. <laughs> I'm pro-badge. I think they would be a great, but again, the universal universality of it. There is a question of validity. Yes. I mean, like... Who says that this means anything? Yes. Are you getting a badge simply because your name has an A in it? Or, you know, Celia gets a badge because she has the most C's in her name. Okay, well, not quite really a valid thing that we should be judging people on necessarily, but, uh, or, you know, when I play my Xbox 360, I get little achievements unlocked and I get a little badge with it. And I know that I can accomplish that task because I have a badge and all my friends on the Xbox network know that I can accomplish that. Now you Here's... have bridged into gamification. Yes, Look at exactly. you. Well, that's where this came from, but yes, 
<laughs> well, you know, that can almost go to Celia's question about scaling or waiting. If you go scaling, now it's number of points. You can gamify your course with a leaderboard on who has the most points in the course. And now if you have 20,000 points in your course, it makes sense. You know, you can now gamify and see who gets to the top of the, of the leaderboard. I think meaningful ways to make it visible uh, may also be quite important. If you find an easy connect for putting that right on your LinkedIn profile, perhaps, or other professional outward-facing web digital footprints that may have meaning. I think my largest concern or my biggest concern is the uh, transferability because it might be meaningful here, let's say within our own system, but that doesn't mean that down the line it would transfer over to some other system. But, you know, if you do have a large organization who routinely provides professional development that is recognized maybe even internationally with, oh, I've completed X program, X course, therefore I have a certain certificate. If they moved to a model that was more competency-based and you earn badges along the way to eventually you, you got enough of those badges to get a certificate, I could see that being very valuable because it can be costly to do some of those programs. And so now you can display on, again, go back to your LinkedIn profile, you can list, I've learned these competencies as accredited by this respected and well-known organization. Therefore, you can go look at that organization and understand what those badges mean. I think in that context, I'm all for badges and I think they're, they're, they make a great idea. Again, for me, it's, it's about coupling it with something like competency-based education and getting away from the standard unit of education that we have today. They're looked at as a method for motivating behavior where the learner is motivated to set a goal and accomplish it. However, this idea of a leaderboard might be antithetical to that. Uh, You might end up creating a hierarchical structure where maybe the people at the bottom of that leaderboard feel disenfranchised. What I find the most interesting about what you just said is that it takes me back to uh, being in a K-12 classroom Mm -hmm. of needing to make sure that there is some sort of incentive, some sort of reward for a student who is accomplishing a skill. So it's interesting that it kind of has followed into higher education and adult learning to where adults, you don't necessarily feel like they need that, that incentive or something to see, but they still are those learners that they kind of were when they were younger and still need to have that incentive or reward. We're basically talking about extrinsic versus extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that's something, I mean, for me, leaderboards, whether I'm at the bottom or the top, I'm never in the middle. I'm usually at the bottom or the top. And usually it depends on how much I actually care about what I'm doing. The only time I really care about the leaderboard is when I'm at the top trying to stay there. I'll be honest. When I'm at the bottom, I either care about the topic or I don't. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how those motivations impact me in different scenarios. Competition can be motivating and it can be a, um, a detractor for some learners. I think so. You see both. If you happen to play online, <laughs> like I do, <laughs> you can see definitely both. Fun question. All right, next. Okay, so here's the scenario. In my face-to-face course, I show three full-length feature films in the course uh, during the class session uh, as a discussion prompt, and we have a discussion based on what happens uh, in those films. I'm now moving my course to a fully online course, and so now my question is, how do I show these three full-length features within my course? What what are my options so that my students can still see these uh, these movies and participate in a discussion. Put it on your syllabus as a required material and make them rent it. Now, by renting digitally, iTunes, Amazon, whatever their means, go to the library. But 
to translate that and post it in your course, icky copyright issues, painful. So you're saying I can't rip, but I own the DVD. Why can't I just rip it and throw it online in my course shell? I'll hide it behind a password. Troll. (laughs) I have no problem with that approach, by the way. I should, but. (laughs) So why don't you have a problem with that approach? And then why should you? (laughs) Because uh, I don't think students should have to pay for materials. I think you're, to use the word again, defranchising them if you make them pay. Not that they can't necessarily, but maybe, oh, maybe there are some who actually can't pay. I think it's the principle of the matter. Um, So there's that. Second, yeah, you're behind locked doors. You have, uh, you have to have a username and a password with the institution to even get into the course in the first place. People from the outside aren't going to be able to like hack in and download it. And if you, depending on what kind of streaming service you have it on, like if you use ASU's MediaAmp, I think it's tricky to, though there's always a way around, I know that, but it's not like YouTube where there's a million and one tools to download YouTube videos and MP3s. It gets a little trickier when you have some of these specialized media services like what we're using here at ASU. So I don't see a problem with, hey, I purchased it. I'm going to throw it up behind closed doors. This is my private audience. No one's making money off this. They might if they end up graduating and getting a degree and then getting a job off that, but that's through hard work and not simply because they stole somebody else's intellectual property. I feel the urge to issue a disclaimer that we're not legal experts here. (laughs) Suddenly. I would first cover my butt and check with the company. I would also look at maybe, is there a way to do snippets of the movies and not do the full length? That's the responsible approach. (laughs) I agree, because then you're moving into the Teach Act territory where you can potentially, you know, explore those options. I think, you know, if I were addressing that question from a faculty member, I would also urge them to reach out to their library staff first, because a lot of libraries already have streaming media services where they can inexpensively license even feature films and then and help translate that to a streaming environment in the course. The previous school I worked for showed a lot of movies within the online courses, and I remember only one, two, or three out of 30, 40, 50 that we couldn't get licensed through the library. Were those specific courses for film and media? One of them was, yes. Yeah, I know that the programs here for film and media studies, they have a they have a special license to a library of pretty much all the all the films, for lack of a better term. I mean, they can there's a ton of things that they have access to. You know, I ask this question because I think a lot of times we we forget that what ownership means of a, of a DVD, and we think that we can just you know rip it using a tool like Handbrake, and like you said, put it in, into MediaAmp, which I think there's a disclaimer on there asking, do you own the copyright or have permission before you actually upload it? Oh, it's on there. Yeah, yeah. and and so a lot of times I think that's a and, and I think the you know the comment about do I have to show the entire movie or not? Maybe it's only certain clips that I really need to show for the discussion point. I think that's a very important thing when you think about you know when I think about an online course. Is it worth two hours of my students' time to watch the entire movie for a discussion board, or is it worth watching only certain bits of it? And, you know, something that's changed over the last couple of years, you know, Netflix and Amazon Prime is so prevalent. It's, it's so inexpensive now to be able to watch any of these things online on your own. So asking a student to pay for it isn't that high. Yeah, I, I know. And we ask them to buy $500 textbooks too. So I know I get it and it's not unreasonable. It's not unfeasible. But if it were me, I would look for ways where they didn't have to pay. Yeah. And I think, and I think we should be responsible for that on the, on the course materials. We need to focus on what's important and maybe, and maybe the whole movie is not important. And there are sites out there that have those key clips already out there for free with permission. I respect your philo- philosophy, Aaron, <laughs> on not charging students for their materials. I thank you. It's, it's very positive. <laughs> All right. I guess that leaves me for the next question. So 
participation points. To do or not to do? No. Would you care to comment further? <laughs> I, You know, in my mind, participation points exist as the squishy room that we think we need, especially from the face-to-face days, to reward the students who are doing well or struggling but tried. It's it's that fudge factor to legitimately go, they tried. Let me let me help them over to the next grade and so they can get one grade letter higher. Or if somebody was being obnoxious, maybe knock them down slightly to to get a lower grade. Is that is that discretion that I don't, you know, I just it doesn't align with the course objectives often. I agree, unless it is directly related to them learning and showing a skill, I would not give participation points. Every learner is different, and some learners are the type that want to sit back and don't necessarily need to participate to get the instruction. And so I don't believe in giving participation points because somebody is raising their hand. If there's an issue of a learner struggling, you see them trying then yes, you might, you know, work with them a little bit more, but I wouldn't give them participation points because they're asking a lot of questions just because they're not understanding. If they're taking responsibility for their learning, then they are going to ask those questions anyways. Good points. If it were me, yes, I would give them. And because I'm, I taught for eight years, I started with the lecture-based approach where I talked at the students and I literally had them falling asleep. I was teaching high school. I eventually started to learn about incorporating the group into the activity and putting the locus of control onto the students and off of myself, right? And it's no less effort. You still have to construct the framework of a solid lesson plan, but then you, you hand it over to the students to fill in the holes with the, the learning material. Okay, so that aside, that is the context here. Sure, like if I were teaching online, for example, especially if I were teaching online with this approach, the students could pop in for the discussions. They could sit there, uh, do their group work and, and throw their PowerPoint, you know, uh, they could create the PowerPoint and, and upload it for me. I never actually interact with this person. Maybe the group never actually sees them except for when they're due for the meetings. This could be because they're a busy parent, you know, if it's a non-traditional student, or it could be simply because they're just doing the bare minimum to get by, right? So I would like to see the students giving more than the bare minimum to get by. And for that reason, I would grant participation points. I think for me, they would probably border on extra credit or... I wouldn't make it a major category in my weighted grading scheme. <laughs> but yeah, I would, I would allow some room for it because I want the students who are really getting into it, and they, they would make the class more interesting. If I'm putting the locus of control onto them, they're going to make the class shine through their activity. And if everybody's doing the bare minimum, it's going to be a dull class. So, so yeah. you're giving points for engagement. Above and beyond the bare minimum. I have a hard time with that when it comes to adult learning. Because I feel that adult learning is a little bit more, you are the one responsible. If I am taking a class and I know I'm getting the learning in, and like you said, if I'm a busy parent and I, I'm just trying to get the work done that I need, if I don't feel like I need to really engage to get the learning done and I, I have the skills down, I'm getting the grades that I need, I don't feel like I would need to put in extra just because the instructor wants me to continue a conversation. I think that that would naturally happen if I was really interested in, let's say, a, a discussion post and some replies. I think that would naturally happen, that they would naturally become engaged on their own versus having to be encouraged by, hey, if you add one more post, 
maybe I'll give you an extra point. Well, let's not make it arbitrary. Well, you know, and I think that's part of it is that, you know, if we're talking about participation as a separate column in the grade book, and I'm assuming that was what your question was more related to. TBD. <laughs> okay. So, you know, from that point of view, again, I'm, I'm going to be strong no. But if you're talking about participation slash engagement as a row on a grading rubric for an assignment, I have a very different feeling about that. Because the way, I, you know, again, let's look at a group project or a teamwork. If you don't do your fair share, if you're not participating and fulfilling your role on a team project, that's going to show up in the work. And it's not going to be called participation per se, but it's going to be called something else. And effectively, that is participation when you get down to it. They're not participating with the team. I feel like that's where rubrics come in. So that you're yeah. setting the expectation of what you want for those posts. And you're maybe even giving examples of how deep you want those posts to kind of be. So it wouldn't necessarily be participation points, but it would be reflected within the grading to say, I want you to give a little bit more than just that surface level reply. Yeah, so if you're trying to build a sense of community in a course and you set the standard of engagement on a discussion board saying, you know, if you make all your posts within a 24-hour period, you don't get your initial post up on time. You don't do all these things. You know, it's like, you know, and, and the 24-hour period, one I call the drive-by. You just come in there, throw a couple posts, and you never come back again to see the effect of them. Then, yeah, you're now embedding participation into the course, not as a standalone item where you can use it as a fudge factor, but actually using it as a benchmark. And it's now... The student has the choice of salad bar and choose to be actively engaged and participate and, or not and see how it will specifically impact certain assignments. Because, you know, how much participation do you need on a multiple choice final exam? Zero. So there's some sophisticated interplay here between your assessment goals, your learners' motivations and their internalized goals, and... I think the next part of that question is how would you rework a participation point system to be meaningful aside from the aforementioned um, row on a rubric? How else could we envision some kind of participation scheme that represents students' learning and take into consideration that everybody exhibits some of that external learning in their own way? How would you rework that? I love the word engagement that you brought. I think for me, it goes back to the rubric, embedding that into the rubric and having it not necessarily labeled participation, but I would have it worded in a way that shows proficiency and it shows finding a way to word the engagement so that it gives the proficiency instead. So you're showing the skill in a more, let's say, expertise way. So if I'm speaking in rubric terms and I'm going, you know, proficiency, expert level, I want to use those terms to show that they are being engaged. Those are great points. And I'm actually riffing off this really interesting um, editorial from Faculty Focus. And they suggest that part of the part of the formula there is actually change the name. Call them engagement points, perhaps, and lead with a an explicit dialogue with the students about learning and the expectations, and to talk about engagement as a vehicle for preparation and participation, and be really specific about the kinds of actions that they take before class, during class, and after class. Anything I, else on participation? I, I do have to ask, aren't participation points essentially an artifact of what used to be called attendance 
Yes. We yes. actually, you know, yes. so when we lectured every day, we would just give you a point for showing up. Yep. So, I mean, this, so this is a nice evolution to something more engaging as, as our learning has become more active or as our teaching has become more active. Yeah, that's how I would conceive of it. Although I would probably create my lesson plans to make it where, especially if it was online. I mean, okay, even face-to-face, you don't have to come to every session to pass the course, fine. But if you did show up and participate and contribute, then it would just be that much nicer. And I might want to give you some more points for that. Um, <laughs> online as well, yeah. I Head think shaking. If we're building a community online, which is sort of the goal of, I would say, effective group learning, then participation is not mandatory, but it definitely is necessary. And if you're not helping to build that community, but you're just, again, doing the bare minimum, you're turning in your assignments, but just at that bare minimum level, then yeah, I'm, I'm not quite as impressed. I'm not as happy. Carrot or stick? <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think the Beat expectations <laughs> are providing examples and expectations is extremely helpful in online classes, because then you're giving them exactly what you're looking for at the bare minimum so that they are having to set their levels at a spot where it's at least something that can motivate a little bit more or push a little bit more. It's interesting when you talked about the face-to-face and how you lectured and you saw that there wasn't a lot of participation. It was just, you know, heads bobbing because they're ready to fall asleep. And you moved into the more active learning and you still feel with active learning you needed to give some participation points. Um, Well, it's a work in progress. What I noticed was that the students were more intrinsically motivated to participate when they took ownership of the learning experience. So that was a huge breakthrough. I was basically taught by, because I was working with a senior uh, instructor, I was basically taught social constructivist methods before I even knew what that was, before I even started my graduate program that taught me what, what the heck that was. See, so that took me to thinking more on the teaching mode and the need to adjust the teaching style versus adjust points on a student for not participating. But if you're doing the active learning and they were getting the more intrinsic yeah. motivation, then yeah. My intention was to clarify that it has to be a learner-centered, so, uh, constructivist approach Otherwise, it would be kind of unfair. If you're just lecturing to give participation points, what, what are the students doing? Not much. <laughs> they're listening. So. And, that, and that's the reason why I don't like participation points is because yeah. of that origin. Because mm. that's how most people gave them. They were fudge factors for students who showed up and came to office hours and asked nice questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or asked soft questions. Because if you asked hard questions, you could go the other way going, oh, you asked two hard questions that weren't related or I didn't think were appropriate. So now I'm going to give you negative points or take some away. Well, that was certainly an interesting collection of questions across many different topics. As we wrap up, I'd like to invite you, our audience, to pose any lightning round questions you'd like to ask by connecting with us on Twitter or by email. Thank you for joining us today to indulge in a creative and rapid exploration of the things that pop into instructional designers' brains with Celia Kachwatiwa, Stephen Crawford, Aaron Kraft, and myself, Jeanette Senecal. As always, many thanks are due to our producer, Ricardo Leon, for he is the glue that holds all of our popsicle sticks together. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation.
If you do have a fire with nice coals, bring some sweet potatoes, wrap them in heavy duty foil, okay? Tuck them in those coals, and it's gonna be the best baked sweet potato of your life. I mean, it sounds amazing. Really good. I really don't eat anything that's cooked. Okay. okay. Well, sorry. Well, just to fur- just to further just <laughs> to further the lack the fact that you are missing out on life, what you really should do uh-huh. is get a nice good fist size of hamburger, put it in a ball of aluminum foil with all your favorite vegetables, okay. and then just throw that in the coals, and then let it cook just like that. Isn't there an alternative? It's called a hobo dinner. Those little cooking tins. Is no, that what you're talking about? You make the little hobo dinner yeah. with with fire, with okay. foil. Yeah, with oh yeah, oh, they do good. make those little tins though that you can have the little wire handle. You know Actually, what I'm talking about? You don't it's the, like the a hobo dinner, maker? kind of. But it's so it's, that's the other one is the hot press like sandwich maker type thing. Um, you take two loaves of bread, okay, and, you, and it fits together like this. You can get them at Walmart and crap, and you like can oh. fill it full of like tomato sauce and cheese and pepperoni, and then like flip it over once. And then I've never tried that. That's a little pizza pocket, that, or you can, I could probably. Do those that. are cool. So hungry. <laughs> Sorry. Should stop talking about food. We'll keep talking 